My name is Abbas Milani. Welcome to our uh, uh, evening's program. Uh, before I say a few words about the, the book and the author, let me tell you a couple of things about our two uh, remaining upcoming events. May 12th, next uh, week, essentially, Thursday. Um, and I think it's in the same room, right? Uh, no, Building 370, Room uh, 370. Najmie Batmangalich will be here talking about her new uh, cookbook called. Uh, but we tried. <laughs> we actually tried. You you'll be surprised. We actually tried to see whether we could find. There is actually a class, uh, a cooking class at Stanford, and we saw it on the program. Uh, and we decided that maybe we tried, but we couldn't get the room. So you're not going to get any Najmeh but Mangalish cooking. You'll get the book, if you like. It's her new book called uh, June, like uh, Badab June, Fesen June, Nusha June. And as you know, she is uh, truly a remarkable both chef and a remarkable uh, aesthetic uh, phenomena. Her cooking is both delicious and beautifully uh, laid out. She was the master chef at the White House No Ruse uh, meal about two weeks ago, and she laid out a table fit for the President of the United States before Donald Trump gets there, of course. <laughs> well, after that, it's going to have to be a different phenomenon. The week, uh, two weeks after that, the last program of uh, lectures for this year, we have Masoud Behnoud, who is going to be both talking. Uh, that program is in Persian. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Persian, I suggest you learn. Uh, but uh, uh, Masoud Behnoud will be talking in Persian, and he'll be showing a film that he has made uh, about Ibrahim Gulistan. Some of you might have seen parts of the film on BBC. Uh, and Behnut doesn't know this, but uh, I might actually get Mr. Golestan to come on Skype and give his comments on the film as well. Although Golestan is in uh, London, but he might, uh, I might take something about uh, the talk, about the film, uh, and surprise Mr. Behnut. So that one is on Thursday, May 26, Building 320. Uh, Room 105. Room 105, right. Uh, on uh, today's uh, program, uh, we have uh, Mr. Copeland, who has written a rather remarkable memoir about a rather unusual life, uh, the life of a, a royalist mother, very dogged in her ideas, but also dogged in her defense of her husband, a father who might have been a CIA, caught in the Iranian revolution, put in prison, uh, and he retrospectively tries to figure out whether the father was actually a CIA agent, uh, what happened to him, and reconstruct a life that has been thus shattered by forces and events outside his control. He writes very beautifully, he writes very elegantly, it is full of fascinating references to literature, to films, to culture, to family dynamics, to tensions between fathers and sons, tensions between sons and a very determined mother. Uh, you get a view of both cultures uh, from a sensibility that knows both cultures. Uh, as the title of the book suggests, Tinker Taylor, Father Spy, those of you who know, this is a reference to a Le Carre novel. And uh, in his uh, narrative, you're as likely to get a Locarre reference as uh, Orson Welles reference as to the minutia of trying to get facts from the CIA, which proves to be almost infinitely impossible. So uh, we've been trying to get him here for about a year. He first kindly sent me his book about a year, I think, and more than a year ago. And we've been trying to get everything uh, worked out and it finally worked and we are very grateful that he is here. Please welcome Mr. Cyrus Hope.
Okay. Thank you. How's the volume? Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, about a couple years ago, I was in my mother's house looking for my father's will. Uh, he had died many years before, and there were some land rights there that were in question. So my mother sent me into the family library to look for it, and I came out with a box that I thought contained it, but did not. But at the bottom of this box was another file which hadn't seen the light of day for 35 years. And it was called, the, the, it had my mother's handwriting across the top of it, and it said Max's Radar Affair. And the file essentially contained the details of an international incident, as they say, that had been hushed up. And so my mother turns to me and she says, open it. And I did. And the contents of the file fell into our laps. It contained everything from, there was a packing list, there was a letter to my mother, uh, to uh, Iranian President Bani Saad, a review of which brought tears to my mother's eyes. And there was a newspaper article from the Tehran Times uh, from 1979. And the headline of the article was, CIA agent smuggling radar equipment caught. This prompts my mother to turn to me and say, you know, of course, your father was a CIA spy. And she and I have had this conversation over the years. And it seemed a little bit of a ridiculous conversation to me because my dad just doesn't fit the profile of a spy. He's American, yeah, uh, but he is more of an academic and very bookish and quiet. And also, he genuinely loved Iran. When we were living there, my father kind of served as our personal tour guide. He was very proud of Iran and of his knowledge of the country, and he knew more about Iran than most Iranians. And so he would take us you know, uh, hiking up into the mountains or, or down into her gorgeous valleys or into the bazaar where everyday life is happening. So the prospect that my dad could be anything other than this dad that I knew was a little ridiculous to me. But I decided that day that I was going to find out one way or another. And so I wrote to anybody that I thought might be able to help me solve this quest. I sent out, do you guys know what a FOIA is? It stands for Freedom of Information Act. And it was essentially a law that was, a law that was passed by Clinton that allows files that are more than, I think it's 25 years old or maybe 35, to be released to the public as long as they don't contain any in, in, intelligence or intellectually sensitive information. So I filed a FOIA request with the CIA, the FBI, with the State Department, the Department of Defense, and I also wrote a letter to President Carter. And I hope that someone, somewhere, knew something, and that, like the file that I had just discovered, that thing would fall gracefully into place. While I was doing my research, I came across an interesting tidbit uh, about the CIA that I'd like to share with you. It turns out that the CIA keeps a top 10 list of all of the inquiries that its database has received over the years. And that, that top 10 list, if you go through it, kind of reflects all the things that we as Americans are curious about, but mostly it reflects the things that we are either fearful of or paranoid about. And so if you look at this list, you'll see uh, fairly consistently in the top 10, Russia, alien invasion, 9-11, uh, Islam, terrorism. And you know what other subject has been lodged in that top 10 list for several decades? Anybody? Iran, yeah, Iran. And I thought to myself, I began to wonder, why is it that this homeland of mine, which I loved dearly, which I love dearly, is an object of such great misconception and fear? And why is Iran essentially the most, I think it's fair to say, misunderstood country on God's green earth these days? It's a, sub, it's a touchy subject for me. Uh, I am, as Dr. Milani said, half Iranian and half American. And I've watched my two homelands uh, go at it with each other for 35 years. And for me, it's been a little bit like being a child of a divorce, only divorce is ugly and it's happening on an international scale. And your parents are demonizing each other and your mother says your father is the great Satan and he says she's the axis of evil. And I, and some of you, are in between all this rancor, left holding 
this and doing our own form of therapy or geopolitical therapy as best we can to kind of come to terms with this contentious heritage. I'm going to try a new theory out on you guys. Um, so track with me for a few minutes. It's not a political theory. Uh, it's a psychological theory, and I love it that we kind of passed through the Department of Psychology to get here. It's almost a mystical theory, really. Um, Carl Jung says that the shadow is that part of our personality or psyche which we reject out of either ignorance or fear or shame. And that the way to heal ourselves is by integrating the shadow. And, and I'm quoting him now. He says, to do this, we are obliged to struggle with evil and confront the shadow to integrate the devil. So today, it doesn't really get any more devilish than the axis of evil and the great Satan. Jung talks about the shadow as a tool for understanding the human psyche, but I want to talk with you guys about the shadow in a framework of international relations. And I would suggest to you that if people have a shadow, then countries can also have a shadow. And if that's true, Iran is certainly America's shadow, inasmuch as it represents everything that we fear but haven't yet come to terms with inside of our own country. 35 years after an Islamic revolution which foisted Islamic fundamentalism on an unready world. We in America condemn and castigate Iran for its apparent sexism, for its suppression of women and suppression of gays, its heavy-handed use of the death penalty, its grabs for nuclear power and apparent immunity to logic, not recognizing that each of these qualities are also qualities that we are still actively contending with here in America. And that this is why we as Americans are so fascinated by Iran and so scared of it. Um, I'm going to read you something. Uh, most, some of you are old enough to remember this, but uh, back when the American embassy was taken uh, was taken by the student radicals, as they were called. There was a cache of documents that they discovered in the embassy, and they released these documents. And at the time, this constituted the largest breach of uh, sensitive intelligence documents that were uh, kind of published. One of these documents was written by Bruce Lengen, who was the charge d'affaires at the time. And it was a memo to his superiors in the State Department that were that advised them about how to negotiate with the new Iranian regime, which had just come to power. And he began with a few cultural observations. He writes, perhaps the single dominant aspect of the Persian psyche is an overriding egotism. Its antecedents lie in the long Iranian history of instability and insecurity, which put a premium on self-preservation. The practical effect of it is an almost total Persian preoccupation with self and leaves little room for understanding points of view other than one's own. So I read that and I think, that's kind of interesting. Because these are the exact same observations and accusations that the world now hurls at America, right? self-serving, egotistical. Are you with us or are you against us? That's basically our foreign policy. Um, in fact, Iran and America are both highly ethnocentric countries, each perceiving the world through their own unique lens. And later in the telex, Langan um, chastises the Iranians for their lack of trust when it comes to negotiations. And you begin to understand how this actually might be true. Imagine you are in Iran today. In fact, better yet, imagine you are a hardliner or a mullah in Iran. Look to the left of your country, what do you see? There's war-torn Iraq, occupied by America. Look to the right of your country, what's there? There's Afghanistan, also war-torn, also occupied by America. Look to history, a 1953 coup led by the CIA that was meant to destabilize the Iranian government. And you would ask yourself, so, would you trust America if you were Iran? This is what makes the, nuclear, the recent nuclear kind of rapprochement with Iran such a remarkable achievement. But even um, as recently as seven or eight years ago, 
Iran reached out uh, to the Bush administration and to engage them in nuclear discussion. And do you know what they were told? They were told this verbatim. We don't negotiate with evil. The truth is that we all project our shadow onto screens, both small and large. Um, both Washington and Iran love casting, uh, both Washington and Hollywood love casting Iran as the bad guy, right? You see movies, they're uh, kind of full of uh, angry Iranian spies and terrorists and mullahs. I still recall myself watching Argo, uh, this kind of deep flash of anger that I felt at seeing Iran and Iranians portrayed basically as a nation of 36 million crazy zealots with their fists in the air. And there's only one good, you guys remember this, there's only one good Iranian in that movie. And you know, do you remember why she's good? She's good because she helps the Americans escape. So we do this, we project our shadow. But the other truth is that um, unlike, say, North Korea, that other axis of evil, Iran and America are countries that respond to and in some ways mirror each other, right? We both have presidents that are working towards peace while their efforts are undone by secondary power grabs, in this case by our Senate and their revolutionary guards. We both have elections and a dynamic and hugely diverse population united under one flag. For 35 years, we have fought hard over nukes and hostages, downed civilian airliners, sabotage and espionage, but we have never stopped responding to one another. And in a weird way, it's like that dynamic that siblings have um, it might be dysfunctional, but it's still a relationship, which means that you get to do what parties to a relationship do, argue bitterly and judge and equivocate and defend and finally make up with each other. Just like we did with Germany and Japan and Great Britain. I don't think it's an accident that our greatest allies today were once our most bitter enemies. So how do we get there? We get there by each of us doing the hard work. I did the work by, I didn't intend it this way, but I ended up doing the work by writing a book. Um, it was 1974 when we moved to Iran and initially life was really beautiful. We had a house at the foot of the mountains and my mother, was the principal of the school that I went to. And for a while, life was great. And then, the revolu and, and then the revolution happened. And my father took a job evacuating Westinghouse's warehouse operations. Now, Westinghouse had sold a lot of very sensitive um, military equipment to the Iranian Air Force. But all of a sudden, all the Americans in the country skedaddled, and all of the American Companies also picked up and left just like that. So as you, have you guys ever seen that movie, uh, Michael Clayton? My father is like the George Clooney character in this movie. He's the, the cleanup man. He's the last man on the ground. And every day he would go to work to this place called Gas de Firuzer, the Turquoise Palace, which was a, a warehouse that was stacked with the most uh, high-tech and sensitive military equipment that uh, was available in the world at that time. It was in this warehouse. And one by one, box by box, my father would pack these up and ship them back to the States. And then one night he didn't come home. And it turned out that he had been arrested and was soon gonna be tried as a CIA spy. And that's when that article that I was telling you earlier about the Tehran Times, CIA agent smuggling radar equipment caught, that was when that article came out. Now, because our little international incident happened against the backdrop of the hostage crisis, the hostages had just been taken three weeks before, we received uh, little to actually no help from the White House or the CIA or the State Department. And when my mother reached out uh, to them for help, nothing happened. So my mother decided she was gonna do something relatively improbable. My father was gonna be tried in military court 
And she went all over Tehran looking for a lawyer for him. But because of all the anti-American sentiment going on in the country at the time, nobody would take his case. So my mother decides that she's going to become his lawyer. Now, she, as I mentioned, she doesn't have any legal training. She is uh, an educator. But every night, or sorry, every day, she would kind of take, uh, she would take down the family Quran from uh, the shelf, kiss it, as you do, and touch it to her forehead, open it up, and begin casting through its pages, looking for a strategy about how she's going to defend my father. And in three weeks, she ended up putting together a strategy and defending him in a military court. So think about this. You have a female royalist in revolutionary Iran who's defending an alleged American spy and using the Quran like a scalpel to slice apart the prosecution's case. Now, I tell you this not because I'm pushing my book, well, maybe a little because I'm pushing my book, but mostly because I realized something about how we Copelands were the representation of a larger geopolitical conflict that was unfolding between Iran and America at the time. Half Iranian, half American, and drawn between two homelands that we loved, each of which demanded our allegiance. My parents taught me how to hold the contradictions of identity um, with a certain grace. But honestly, it's something that I have had trouble with and I still, still have trouble with. It's very depressing and occasionally amusing, but mostly disheartening to watch your two homelands go at it year after year for 35 long years. So I decided I, decided I was going to go back to Iran and write the last chapter of my book there. Now, this isn't exactly the wisest or the safest idea. Uh, I am, after all, the son of a convicted CIA spy. But I wanted to know the truth of that country. So I got a ticket. And when my plane landed on the Tehran tarmac, I had the very first anxiety attack I've ever had in my life. Uh, I was immobilized in my seat, my breath grew shallow, my heart's like And I was the last person to get off the plane. My first week there, I saw that they had renamed the streets and rewritten the books and essentially refashioned history. And I realized something. The revolutionaries and the Americans both have a very static view and understanding of Iran. The revolutionaries want to basically excise 2,500 years of recorded history and place the birth of a nation in 1979. And the Americans, with their movies and their TV shows featuring the robed mullahs and the angry people with their fist in the air, are also stuck in 1979. But this was not the Iran of my childhood. Discovered much to my amusement, Iran today is really the only pro-American, reliably pro-American population in the entire Middle East. If you discount Israel, to whom we sell millions of dollars of military equipment. But my favorite place to spend uh, the afternoon, the day in fact, was in the Tehran's Big Bazaar. Uh, I had such fond memories of it as a child. And so I would, um, I, I loved just kind of walking through it and seeing the shoeshine boys and the rug merchants and you know, the women in their chadors and, this, the, the thing, and the pomegranate juice, which was freshly squeezed and kind of spiced with that particular spice that they have. And I don't look Iranian, so when I'm walking, uh, the merchants would call out, uh, hey, mister, where are you from? And uh, I would say in Farsi, I'll give you a thousand tumans if you can, if you can guess. So this starts a guessing game. And everybody starts getting into it. Uh, Spain, Italy, France, no, no, no. And nobody ever guessed right. So I'm like, I'll give you one hint. Death too? And then somebody would pipe up, Israel? 
I'm like, no, the other one. They go, America! And there is substantial joy at this revelation because all of the rancor that's built into that one-time little poisonous slogan has been burned through for 35 years. From Tehran, uh, I ventured to Shiraz, which I mentioned is where I grew up. And uh, I had such fond memories of that lovely city. And I wanted to walk around Shiraz and essentially approach all the markers of my childhood slowly and on foot. So I'd go out and, and I would kind of go back to the school where my mother was the principal. I'd go to uh, Ram with a beautiful rose garden with thousands of different kinds of roses there. Park of Farah where my sister and I would play as a child. And that night I stumbled, well, maybe limped, back into the hotel. And the concierge takes one look at me and he goes, wow, you really need a sauna. Okay. But if you go in the sauna, make sure, uh, pay attention to the pipes because they're really old. All right. So sure enough, on my way out of the sauna, I knocked loose one of these pipes, uh, which set a jet of scalding steam onto my ankle that produced an instant blister the size of a small plum. Luckily, there was a burn hospital uh, within a stone's throw of the hotel, and I soon found myself being treated by a revolutionary nurse, Nurse Jaffetti. And I knew he was a revolutionary because, for, first of all, because he had that, the beard, um, and also he stood in that way that revolutionaries stand. There's a slight humility to it, but also slight arrogance, a little bit like this. And there was, this, there was also the other thing which kind of gave it away was a big portrait of the Ayatollah behind him. Um, so this man, I, really, I was wary of him because in his ideologies, he represented everything that I feared. But also, um, he was the only guy who can heal me at the same time which is a very interesting place to be in. At the time, it made me think, okay, God's got a really good sense of humor uh, delivering me and my wound to this guy. Um, the next day, he came to my hotel and just to check up on me, free of charge, he wouldn't take any money. Uh, I had offered him money the previous day, but he wouldn't take it. And the next day, we kind of got into a conversation and I found out that he had been a nurse in the Iran-Iraq war. And he's telling me stories about the chemical warfare and the mustard gas and sarin and how horrible it was and soldiers with severed limbs and burnt faces and tents full of wounded people that stretched from here to the horizon. And all this time he's wondering, why isn't the world saying anything about this? And then he turns to me and, he, and then he turns to me, looks at me and then he looks at the ground. And then he says, the chemicals had been furnished by America and they were sold through a clandestine network, first to, Argent uh, first to Argentina and then to Germany. And I said to him, and here you are dressing my wounds. And he says to me, I, look, uh, I don't have a problem with Americans. Your people are fundamentally decent. It's your foreign policy that uh, I take issue with. And when I offered him money again, again, he wouldn't take it. And it seemed to me like he was, uh, it seemed to me like he was grappling with something because having heard of the atrocities of America, he was suddenly faced with one of its wounded. And it helped that I was, it helped that I was wounded. And it, it helped that I spoke Farsi. And um, at one point he, he draped his arm over my shoulder and we took a picture together and he said, you're like my brother, not really in features, but in feeling. And as he said that, he thumped his heart. As I was limping around Shiraz in the following days, I had a thought, which is that if a revolutionary nurse uh, who treated soldiers that had been burnt by American supplied chemicals on a battlefield can find forgiveness, maybe there is hope for the rest of us. When he bandaged my wound, he gave me very specific instructions. He said, um, Give this time to heal. It's gonna feel itchy for a while, but you mustn't pick at it. As the framework for 
our rapprochement with Iran falls into place, I would humbly suggest to you that we would do well to remember his words. Because here's the thing, in relationships gone sour, both personal and political, we retell the same old stories about breaking up and our wounds over and over and over again. But uh, our media have been doing it, our politicians have been doing it, They've been telling this story for a very long time, but in the retelling of this story, we ourselves remain stuck in the muck and the mire of it. And we keep our wounds fresh in this way, and we also keep our shadow very strong. I want to talk for just a couple minutes more to the Iranian Americans in the audience today, um, because you folks are in a position of, I think, considerable power to help heal this rift between Iran and America. And you know where your power resides? It's all in that little hyphen that separates and also bridges your two cultures and countries, Iranian, American. Being conscious of our shadow means holding the tension of opposites within. Hold the contradiction between your two homelands and do not be swayed too strongly to one side or another. Be the hyphen. Today, we don't really have an embassy in America, and I would encourage you to make your home into an embassy of sorts and invite people into your homes to discover the wonderful and kind and gracious country and culture that constitutes your homeland. Be an ambassador, if you will. A lot of Iranians call themselves Persian. My mother is actually one of them. I imagine that some of you also refer to yourselves in this way. And today, I want to challenge you to do something a little bit radical and let go of that term and the romance of it and also the slightly fuzzy nature of it and fully embrace the sharp shadow of being Iranian, right? Persia, Persia, Persia is a land of kingdoms and artistic and cultural contributions to the world. God knows the world owes Persia a debt of gratitude for, among other things, and I'm going to read them because I don't want to miss a single one of these. The banker's check, the postal service, the first charter of human rights, the first astronomical observatory, the first calculator, the decimal, the algorithm, algebra, trigonometry, the almanac, decibel, the mechanical clock, and the earliest electrical batteries, the windmill, the watermill, the bullfight, the words paradise, what a wonderful word, paradise, the words paradise and magic, the Persian carpet, Persian cats, Persian cucumbers, Persian blinds, the Shiraz wine grape, the Kuhanur diamond, the gardens of the Alhambra, and the Taj Mahal the earliest stained glass, the founding motto of the United Nations, the three magi who were, by the way, from the city of Qom, Christmas lights and the tradition of Christmas trees, and come to think of it, the very ideology of Christian theology altogether, heaven and hell, the idea of messiahs and angels and the sacramental use of wine, the poetry of Hafez and Rumi and Sa'di and Omar Khayyam and Firdosi, the Thousand and One Nights, which was, by the way, one of the first books to be translated from Persian into Arabic, and its beguiling narrator, Scheherazade. Chess, polo, all of these things can be traced back to Persia. But what happens when you say the name Iran? What do you think of? I'm asking you. Khomeini. Khomeini. What else? Mullahs. Religion, nukes, sanctions. Yeah. It's up to us to change all that. And the way that we do that is by proudly reclaiming our Iranian name and confronting our shadow. I like to joke about it. When I answer the phone at home, I say, hey, sometimes, hey, it's your favorite Iranian. Or occasionally, hey, it's your favorite Islamic terrorist. People love that. <laughs> If you were my lover and you wanted to leave, I might threaten to take you hostage. And if you laughed at me, as some people occasionally do, I would say, don't laugh when an Iranian says he's going to take you hostage. The way 
through all this, the way out of all this is the way through all of this. And it begins with each one of us. We need to embrace our shadow in our hearts and also in our foreign policy. And you know who taught me that? The man who taught me that was a revolutionary nurse, a man who represented everything that I used to fear, but who became eventually the agent of my own understanding and healing in this way. I would encourage you to take a look at the things that you fear in other people or in other countries and and see how they are occasionally and often a reflection of something that you fear and have not yet reconciled inside of yourself. This is how the shadow works. All this judgment and demonization and disassociation, the rancorous headlines, the poisonous talk, is all a convenient distraction from the real work of healing that is at hand. It's true at the therapist's office. It's true on the world stage. It's called projection. Ex-lovers do this. Groups do this. Cults do this. Organizations do this. Hollywood does this. Religions do this. We do this. But here's the other thing. We demonize and dehumanize the things that we're afraid of. But here's the other thing. We are all responsible for each other's healing through the buttons that we push in one another. This also is true of countries. It's true of people. And it is true of you. And it's true of me. Thank you. And now I guess we can take some questions if you all have any questions. Do you have any answer, anybody? Uh, somebody's got a question. Yes? Uh, for some time I've wanted to travel uh, over there. What would be the best way to start down that road? Um, is there like particular travel agencies around here? There are a burgeoning number of travel agencies that are uh, leading the charge Vasco da Gama-like uh, into the new old world of Iran. Um, the New York Times actually runs uh, one such uh, group, and it runs it twice a year. I've heard good things um, from people who have, who have taken that, that tour. Yes? It's clear that you did a lot of research for your book, so I wondered whether you were able to substantiate the claim of the, the revolutionary nurse about the origin of the gas. I did a little bit of my own research in that way, and that's one of those things that also, uh, I mean, obviously doesn't really reflect so well, so it's difficult uh, getting that information. I've followed a couple of nar interesting narrative paths uh, on Google, and it seems to go in that direction. That's as much as I can say. I w it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You're, you're a very eloquent speaker. I'd love to hear something that you've written. Do you have a short passage from your book that you could share with us? Oh. <laughs> um, oh, you know what I'd like to do? Uh, I think I'd like to read a poem that my mom wrote, if you don't mind, uh, to give you a little bit of her, uh, a taste of her own sensibility. She very proudly, could I tell you something? Uh, my mother wrote a poem uh, about her feelings for Iran the night before she left it for what she thought would be the final time. And if I have any facility with words, it's, um, it comes from her. <clears throat> I am soaked with the love of my country, and rightly so, the name of Iran ennobles me. For all of the historical achievements of Iran, I am proud and ever so delighted to contemplate her artistic, historical, and scientific victories. If science and art are the measure of man, Iran is the winner, as usual. There is nothing in this world stronger than the love of one's country, nor will there cross one's mind a dirtier thought than her foe. A nation will never lose the love of her countrymen nor release anyone from the bonds of allegiance 
I'm a daughter of Iran and ready to shed with love and sincerity every last drop of my blood in her name. My life will never be complete until once more I kneel to touch the fertile earth of home. And that's for my mom. <coughs> yes? Uh, what happened in the trial of your father as far as the revolutionary guards or whatever the Mullah decided? And what happened in what you looked for? So I don't want to answer your first question because it might ruin it for uh, anybody who buys the book. That's one of the narrative threads that runs through it. But I will, let me just say this. I did find the answer of whether or not my father was a CIA spy, but I didn't find it in a, the place that I thought I was going to find it. Um, I thought that the CIA would magically open up their files and help. Um, but... And you know, when, they, when you file a FOIA request, they're supposed to respond within a certain number of weeks. A year and a half later, they still haven't responded to me. So let me just kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, my father died a long time ago. And I always feel guilty that, I've always felt guilty that I haven't known him as well as I wish I had. And on the anniversary of his death, I was compensating for this by telling stories about him to a friend of mine. And I was telling that story about how he had converted to Islam to marry my mother. And my friend asked me, well, what did he convert from? And I said, he was a Christian. And he goes, yeah, but what sect of Christianity? And I said, well, I don't know. And he goes, you don't know what kind of Christian your dad was? And I said, no. So he says, well, you have to grow back to Oklahoma where he grew up. Now, I'm a New Yorker, and the prospect of going to Oklahoma, frankly, seemed like a rather severe punishment, <laughs> just for not knowing what kind of sect of Christianity my dad is from. But my friend is very wise in this way. He's got a strain of empathy which runs through him, which I've owed whenever I listen to him. So I went back, and I sat inside uh, my father's childhood. I met people that he had grown up with. Uh, I talked to people that he had gone to school with. I went to see the ranch where he used to herd cattle and sheep across Hill and Dale. And I also end up finding my dad's diary from a year, 1957, that he had uh, written about a trip that he had taken with a, a professor of his uh, to Asia. Now, this in and of itself is a relatively unusual thing for a boy from Grove, Oklahoma, which itself is like 20 years behind Tulsa and coming along, as they say, uh, to take Route 66, like other people of his generation, all the way across the country to San Francisco and light out into the world in search of an adventure. But he did that. And it was in reading that diary and comparing that diary to another version of uh, another written version of that trip that I discovered interesting things and disparities. And one character in particular um, who had a son. And his son, it turned out, did work for the CIA. And I don't want to say any more than that, but it was that instance and the discovery of that diary and talking to that person that I was able to answer the question that had set me on that quest. Yes? So as I, as I listened to you and your presentation, um, I noticed that you went back and forth between the narrative of your personal experience in writing the book, instances, and drew conclusions in support of the second aspect of your talk, which is the sort of bridge, the hyphen between Iranian and Americans. And, and you sort of made sure that you were driving that message home that us Iranian Americans are supposed to be these roaming ambassadors uh, uh, building bridges. So my question to you is, if I understood this presentation uh, correctly, whether your book really was written because of your objectives to build these bridges, or really to convey a very interesting story. Um, 
or, or is it, was it really both? But what was the primary motivation? It honestly began with that question of what, whether my dad was CIA. I had known for a long time that us Copelands had a relatively interesting story, but I didn't know how to tell it. And so it remained untold for a very long time until I learned how to tell it, uh, until I realized how to tell it, I should say. Uh, it's told from three voices. My father's as an American, my mother's as an Iranian, and me as a bicultural child who's learning to hold the contradictions of his own identity, even as we are at the nexus of one of the most iconic disruptions of our time. This is the thing, though, about writing or, in fact, about any kind of creative undertaking that you do. You never know where you're going to end up. I didn't write it with the intention of being that bridge. That's something that I've always struggled with. And it was almost an accidental form of grace for me to discover that in the telling of the story was the healing of these two things for me. So it wasn't purposeful. Yes? So growing up, what did you know your father to be doing? Um, what was his employment? He, uh, he, my father is a very interesting and improbable man. Uh, he began his life uh, in America as an ambassador of sorts in a way. Uh, he, there were, <laughs> it was a cool little story. I'm just gonna cycle back to it for a second if you don't mind. Um, my mother and father had been invited to, the, to celebrate the Shah's, it's either 43rd, I think it's his 43rd birthday that they were holding at the embassy at the time. Uh, Ansari was the ambassador in Washington. And so my mom and dad went to, went to that event. And the Shah at the time was, uh, there's a university in Shiraz called, it's, I don't know what it's called, what is it called right now, doctor? It used to be Pahlavi. It used to be Pahlavi. What is it called now? Shiraz. Shiraz, Shiraz University. Okay. When it was Pahlavi University, it was the first university in Iran with an American-style curriculum. And my father was in charge of hiring both Iranian and American professors uh, to deliver against that curriculum and move to Shiraz. So the Shah's chatting with my dad about this. And my mother, there's a separate little uh, story about my mom and the, and the Empress where my mother is chatting with uh, Ambassador Ansari's wife, and all of a sudden she's informed that the Empress wants to meet her. And the news of which causes my mother to spill strawberry compote down her decolletage. So Mrs. Ansari says, oh my god, you can't greet the Empress like that. But my says, no, 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 take me to her quickly before I lose my nerve. So she does, and she makes a joke with the Empress about, look how nervous Your Majesty makes her, um, makes her countrymen. But they got to talking that day, and the Shah issued a formal invitation to my father that night to go to Iran. Um, so they did that a couple of years later. When my father did that, he wasn't working on, uh, with Paladin University at the time. Uh, then he started working with um, Hughes Aircraft, and later with, uh, as treasurer for the Iran uh, IEI school, Iran and Electronics Industries, that little um, co-corporation with Westinghouse. So my father's always kind of kept one foot in academe and one foot oddly or maybe not so oddly, because Iran, if you were an American in Iran, you didn't have that many choices for employment. Uh, defense was it. So academe and defense uh, at the same time. So that's how he was tasked with doing cleanup. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, yes. Westinghouse was uh, a partner with Iran Electronics Industries. They had, as I mentioned, sold millions of dollars to uh, the Iranian Air Force. And the question of ownership, by the way, is a relatively interesting one. Uh, if you talk to Westinghouse, they would say that the equipment that my father was repatriating belonged to them because they hadn't, the Iranian Air Force hadn't fully paid for it. They'd only paid for 90% of it. And that 10% was where the profit margin was. The Iranian Air Force obviously had a slightly different perspective about that, but that's what blew up into this whole huge thing. Yes? So in the early 60s, I was in uh, engineering classes with many Iranian students who universally 
hated this job. I'd go to the Los Angeles airport, a plane full of Iranians would come in, they would sit me down and denounce the shop for two hours. So you're over there, and you didn't have any idea of the depth of hatred for the shop? Uh, no, no, I knew that there, that there are two sides to, um, I, I was aware of that. You want, but I feel that you want to ask me a second follow-up question. Why do I, why were we royalists? No, why, what did you think was the Shah good or bad? Um, listen, I was 10 uh, when I moved there. <laughs> and when I moved there, uh, the celebrations at Persepolis had just happened. And they were big, grandiose celebrations that depending on which side of that coin you landed, you, you would either condemn the Shah for spending so much money on, against that, for me, they colored my dreams more than any Grimm's fairy tale ever could. So uh, I thought that it was kind of uh, grand. Um, my mother was a royalist. I was raised in that royalist kind of tradition. If you asked her that question, she would point out all the wonderful things that the Shah did, from modernization to uh, protection of Iran's forests. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the freedom that women enjoyed, under his regime and compare it to what's going on right now, it's an interesting comparison. So why did these students feel that way? You would have to ask them. Well, I'll tell you, this one girl, she was built like a stevedore. She said she was a student at the University of Tehran. Okay. And she said the Shah's Salah parachuted out of the sky, arrested her, and forced her to work in an oil field for two years. Then she escaped to Russia, and then she was a student in America. Okay. That's what she told us. So she got arrested while she was a student at the university by Salah parachuting on her, that's what she said. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> I, can't, I can't speak to that. That's a good story, though. Well, apparently a lot of students, uh, I guess they were being paid for by Iran to come here and study. But they... Oftentimes they were here on the Shah's dime, by the way. Pardon? They were here on the Shah's dime. The Shah... That's right, but they hated it. Well, it's kind of interesting. I know, it's interesting. <laughs> right? So, yes. If you don't mind me asking, what did your parents mean? Oh, that's another interesting story. Uh, so my father had, uh, as I mentioned, launched himself out into the world at the tender age of 21, where he took uh, a trip to Asia. And my mother, not at the same time, but she was the youngest woman to leave Iran and chaperoned at the age of 17 where she uh, ended up uh, going to London and having a career as a model and also as an announcer for the BBC where she would translate Shakespeare's plays into Farsi. And they both met uh, the very first day of their respective arrivals in Washington, D.C. in the hotel dining room where to hear my mother tell the story my father had the temerity to approach her and inquire if she always enjoyed the luxury of a late breakfast. And that's how they met. Anybody else? Yes? Um, I you know this is personal, but your book is kind of personal. Yes. So did your mom go back to her? My mother has been back to Iran. Yeah. Yeah. So what does she think? She's Iranian. And forget about what's going on at whatever level. There's such a fundamental love that she has for the soil and the psyche of that country. Um, and that doesn't go away. No. She still talks about it with such passion and, uh, and, and fervor. Yes? I don't, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me being naive. I'm a little shocked that your investigation showed that the U.S. manufactured mustard gas and sarin for sale to the rest of the world. The U.S., let me uh, kind of go back there again, sold, my understanding of this, is chemical weapons, but it wasn't, it was done in a very clandestine fashion. It was sold first to Argentina, and then to Germany, and then to Iraq. Let me look it up. Oh, are you surprised? Yeah. Why? If you sell something, can you be used back on you? And I thought we, I thought it's against the Geneva Convention to use things like mustard gas. <laughs> 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 
I think they brought for the first time. They, they said we know they have they have uh, chemical weapons, and the reason was because we gave them that. So we have the receipts. So that was the, the, the conversation back in the uh, middle of the 70s when we talked about, or 80s. Okay. But you know, while there might be some debate on where Saddam Hussein got the guts, there is absolutely no discussion that when he used it against Iranians, the Reagan administration did nothing. No one knew anybody else in the world. Everybody no. watched, they're talking about the US, they're talking about the US. Yes, but who do we talk to about, we shouldn't be manufacturing this stuff. <laughs> 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 I agree. We used to go to style of these documents. If you go to a site called National Security Archive, and they say there's a whole file of declassified material about what the US knew, about how much chemical weapons they had, what they used, what Rumsfeld told the president, what every, all of the declassified documents are there. It's a, on a, one folder, you, you will be shocked by what is available. Uh, I, you have, I, don't, I didn't see it in your references, but it, it's on there, and it's just remarkable. So Cruz dropped out of the race, so Trump become president, he <laughs> probably sell it because it's quite uh, Profitable. <laughs> <laughs> also, Rothschild is in the next building. You might have to go out. <laughs> yes. Are you planning to go back to Iran again? I would like to. You would like yeah. to. Yeah. I, I just have such a good, soulful time. Um, and I, I was there for only two weeks the last time, but uh, two weeks I thought would be enough, but it wasn't enough for me. I just was sorry to have to leave it when I left it. Yeah. So you talk about the um, really the, the shadow, right? Where it's almost a sort of this kind of love-hate relationship um, between the U.S. and Iran. But you know, how do you see the current paradigm changing, where both countries still refer to the other as evil? I mean, how can it, and especially in this sort of um, perspective that there's this ongoing clash of civilization between Western civilization and and Islamic civilization, where, I mean, how would you see that evolving to where the countries would not be as opposed to each other as they are today? Well, again, I think part of that work begins with me and you and everybody who uh, is willing to acknowledge the uncomfortable part of yourself that you project or we project onto the countries people that we are afraid of. That's where the real lasting forms of healing begins. Carl Jung would say that, and I would second him about that. Um, the other thing is that this is messy, and diplomacy is messy. Uh, but there's an opening all of a sudden for the first time in 35 years in a part of the world which has been beset by nothing but trouble. Um, and it's a pro-peace paradigm shift. Uh, and I can't underscore how remarkable I think that is. So I think that is a foundation which has a, a lot of hope built into it. If we turn it into something systemic, so that no matter who's in power, on what side, the dialogue and relationship continues. Anybody else? Yes. What is the source of the idea that the three magi came from Cole? <laughs> I don't know. There was an Englishman who did a study about that, um, and I could uh, I could point you towards him. Uh, it, yeah, Cole. <laughs> well, it wasn't religious at the time. Remember, this is long before Islam. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just read on Wikipedia that the Jews actually came from Canaanites. In the year 5000 BC. Yes? This story must have been brewing inside you for so long. It's, was the catalyst the finding the diary, or just that, like you said earlier, that you had to learn how to tell the story? Uh, what took you so long to write? God, I, I, so as I mentioned, I knew that this was a remarkable story, but I had no idea how to write it. And 
every time I kind of sat down to write it, you know, you, if you're an authors or writers here, or artists can kind of uh, back me up on this, there wasn't, I couldn't find the authenticity of it. I couldn't find the right voice to tell the story. And so I'd come back to it and it just wasn't right. Uh, but that file, the discovery of that file, and my mother's handwriting across the file, Max's radar affair. And the contents of the file had all the markings of a classical affair, right? <clears throat> Divided loyalties, unaccounted for hours, hidden allegiances. And reading that article and getting into that discussion about, you know, your father was a serious spy with my mother for maybe the seventh or eighth time, I thought, I'm going to find out the answer to this once and for all. And it was in the discovery of those answers that the book almost began to write itself in a way. Yes? Um, I'm halfway through your book, so uh, I have a bunch of questions, but I don't want to give the story away. One thing that comes reading as much as I have is your mom, her strength, her intellect, and their sense of humor. Mm -hmm. uh, I think at some point you talk about the fact that she wrote Secretary Clinton. That's a great story. You've got to share that with these. So remember, do you guys remember when the, the hostage, not the hostages, the hikers, the American hikers who were yes. arrested and then how my mother wrote a letter to I think she was then secretary, almost of President Clinton, to <laughs> Secretary Clinton, offering to go to Iran and negotiate her freedom. And it didn't strike her that at age 80, and I hope to God she doesn't mind my giving her age away, uh, she might not have the resources to do this. But my mother has uh, always kind of had an extraordinary background. You know in Iran there's that term, Shidazan, lioness. My mother's a lioness. Well, she has a story. If you if you go to Georgetown, you go to Oxa, then you go. She, you have a story there. Yeah, <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah. I hope that somebody in you know what? It's my secret hope that Angelina Jolie hears about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for a good woman to play. <laughs> yes. Is there a greater source of the trouble in Iran than the fact that World War One, World War Two? Oil there was critical. I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question. Are, are you asking if all the conflict there was because of oil? Um, well, I have read that the uh, Bank of Berlin had a contract with the, with the uh, Sultan in Istanbul. He would, they would build a Berlin to Baghdad railroad in exchange for the rights to the oil in the Ottoman Empire, and that Churchill. Uh, Realized that he who has the oil wins the war, uh -huh. which has been true for the last hundred years. Yeah. And somehow got England to have the oil from Iran, which was the major source of oil then. But that was even before they discovered oil in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So if without that oil, they would have probably not had all this. What happened? Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. I mean, it's astonishing that that viscous black liquid that's just the result of a lot of geological pressure on a land has been the source of so much wealth and heartache and international contention and greed um, and modernization all at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Did your mom believe that your father was an agent? She did. She, did. she didn't start out believing that at first. Uh, but I think during the course of the trial, I came to believe that he was. Yes? Um, I'm really intrigued by your statement about being the hyphen, and that's, that's a really beautiful um, thing to say. And, I, and it's really hopeful, but I think the reality is probably pretty tricky and pretty hard and sometimes really uncomfortable. So what do you feel is the most authentic an effective way to interact in the face of 
for, for me? Yeah. Well, I mentioned, I really like to joke about it. Uh, because if you find your way in through humor, there is all of a sudden a softness there. And where there's a softness, there's a chance for a laugh. And where there's a chance for a laugh, there's a chance for a little bit of a dialogue, and maybe the slightest shift um, in perceptions. That's how I've dealt with it. That's how I've dealt with it. He's kindly agreed to sign some books. But I think uh, you're going to get your book signed. We should try to stop uh, okay. and uh, uh, continue the conversation in the process of uh, signing. Thank you, David. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>